Hello, dear friends, and welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich. Now, if we could all just save time in a bottle, to quote the late, great Jim Croce. Well, maybe we're thinking about time and how little we seem to have. That thinking might be all wrong. Our guest today is Professor Ashley Willens from Harvard Business School, a leader in time and happiness research, and the author of a great new book called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. I suggest you allot some time to read and savor and learn a lot from this wonderful new book. Oh, and uh, thanks for taking the time to listen to On Mike, a good use of your time for sure. So, Professor Ashley Willens, I'm ready to be time smart, so let's do it. Let's go on, Mike. This is such a great topic. Uh, Was it Ben Franklin who said, uh, one today is worth two tomorrows? He said a lot of very bright things, but today we have somebody just as bright, and that's a compliment because she's terrific. Her book is called Time Smart, as mentioned in the introduction. Ashley Willens, and uh, I'm glad we found the time to do this. That's really lovely of you. Thank you. Yes, likewise. You've studied this issue, and it seems so innocuous to some people because time is just relative. It's there all the time. But uh, some of the findings are pretty startling. What was the most surprising thing in, in the research you put together? I think one of the most surprising data points that I have is just how many people feel time poor. So in my research, I look not only how people spend time on an everyday basis from an objective standpoint, but also how they feel about the amount of time that they have available. And in one data set of 3 million working Americans, 80% reported feeling time poor. Like they had too many things to do in a day and not enough time in the day to do them. And these feelings of time poverty had a stronger negative effect on happiness than unemployment. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you, obviously. What impact does this time poverty have on the average Joe or Jane? And it really is not just the average Joe, it's everybody if it's 80%. So what what is specifically happening to us if we're not careful with our time? Yeah. So, you know, feeling overwhelmed and not being careful with our time makes us feel stressed out. We're less able to connect with people that we care about. We spend less time socializing with friends and family, and we're even less engaged in our communities. So we spend less time volunteering, less time voting. We're less able to pursue meaningful hobbies. We're just treading water, uh, trying to keep up. And I think that's definitely how I feel. Um, I just didn't know how widespread that that feeling was. Yeah, you're not excusing yourself from this. You're a human being. And so you're a busy lady. You just recently got married. That takes a lot of time and planning and effort, especially these days. But uh, let's get into some of the specifics here and uh, talk about this. Is it likely that the time poor population has just exploded because of the phone that we hold in our hands that shows us every minute of every day what we're doing and where we've been. We take photos of everything as if seeing it alive is not enough. So talk a little bit about the technology and how that impacts the time. Researchers believe, and I agree with this conclusion that technology is one of the major traps that's making us time poor. Technology was supposed to free us from the office. Instead, we take our offices everywhere we go. And this creates what researchers call time confetti. So technology distracts, disrupts our leisure into small, unenjoyable moments of free time. Not only is it shaving away the precious moments of leisure that we have available, 
it's also making us enjoy our leisure less. Every moment that we're pulled out of the present into something else that we could or should be doing, this creates goal conflict and makes us feel more stressed out. A very concrete example, one of my colleagues has research showing that just turning your alerts off when going to the science museum with your kid makes you enjoy it more than when you have your alerts on. Because every time you get an alert, usually from work, you think to yourself, should I leave the science museum early so that I can go home and work on that project? And then you think, am I a bad parent for thinking that? <laughs> and so it's constantly pulling you between these different roles and different identities that you have in your life, creating the sense of goal conflict and increasing stress levels. It even happens at night when people are in bed, they should be sleeping or enjoying something, music, relaxing. They're looking at their phones. And this goes for young people too, for students, kids in school. Technology is really distracting. Um, and as I mentioned, there's good data suggesting it's really undermining the quality of our leisure activities. It makes it hard to disconnect, makes it hard yeah. to connect with things that are really happening in real so, time. So let's stay with the time confetti thing. It makes sense, all the digital numbers that are blasting our way every day and in our eyes and all of our senses, but other confetti that we have to be aware of, what would it be? I would say over scheduling your time, putting things too close together in your schedule. We've all become really obsessed and focused on scheduling and being really productive. And that can actually come at the cost of our enjoyment and our productivity. So when we schedule meetings too close together, for example, in the middle of a workday, this pulls us out of the meeting that we're in into the next meeting that we have. So now we're not engaged, we're not paying attention, we're thinking about the next activity. This is even worse for leisure than it is for work. I think all of us get pretty used to being on web calls all day, every day. And so maybe we're less likely to be kind of anticipating that next meeting because we don't have to get up. We don't have to travel anywhere for it. But when it comes to leisure, if we schedule our leisure activities too close together, running, baking, calling this person, calling another person, that that really undermines our enjoyment because our leisure starts to feel like work. So we really want to be thinking about not creating confetti in our schedules um, in addition to not being creating time confetti for ourselves with our technology. By the way, you don't just outline the problem, but each chapter has what you call a toolkit. And there are suggestions on, and we'll get to some of those for our listeners, but they'll want to read the book by our guest, Ashley Willens, called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. It used to be when you were a kid, or when I was a kid, at least in the old, old days, you'd go out and play and have no sense of time, no concept. Now, as you know, there are scheduled play dates. How can you schedule play? George Carlin did a bit on that many years ago. So it's, it's happening from babyhood up, isn't it? Yeah. And I think this is a real problem. So I have some data unpublished from my dissertation showing that even when we think about the same block of time as being scheduled and close-ended, so you tell a participant in a lab study that they have an hour to work on tasks versus you tell them they have as much time as they need and it'll probably take an hour, that people in the first condition are less creative, less in the moment, less spontaneous. They're working toward a deadline. But if we allow ourselves open-ended time where we feel like we're freer in the amount of time that we have, this can make us more creative and even more productive. So it not only is coming at the cost of our ability to play, to connect, but also to have creative and innovative ideas. This is why companies have started to innovate around this, having dabble time, having 
sabbatical so that employees can truly take their time off the clock and explore. And those have been the sources of some of the most creative innovations in companies. Say what you will about French. Uh, You can say a lot about the French, but they do have one thing down right. And that's vacations and recreation and rest. And that summer, that August, that month that just disappears off off the calendar. We don't do that here in this country here in the West. In my data, 75% of Americans that are entitled to receive vacations don't take all of them. (laughs) So we definitely are idleness averse in North America. We're constantly always trying to fill our schedule with something productive and worry about taking any time off. So many very wise people and artists and historical figures have said time is better than money. Duke Ellington said it. Time is better and more precious and valuable than money. I totally believe that. But the money factor plays a big part of this, doesn't it? It really does. And I think so much of it in the data that I observe, I also show that time is better than money and that people who put time first, not money first, are happier, have better social relationships, are more intrinsically motivated in their careers. Yet we also need to identify why it's so hard to put time first. And I think going back to this question or this observation that in the US people are particularly money centered is because there's a lot of economic instability um, in the US, but also around the world. So what I see in my data is it's not about how much money you have in the bank that predicts whether you're more time focused or more money focused. It's how secure you feel about your finances. So when we're in an economic recession, when unemployment is high, when companies lay off workers really constantly, this creates this fixation on money out of necessity. And so it's not just an individual issue. It also has a lot to do with the way our societies are set up. So we have observed in some of our papers that countries that have a higher proportion of respondents who value leisure over work are happier. Surprise, surprise, who are those countries? Well, they're Scandinavian countries, they're European countries that have more social support and resources available. And so, of course, they have a higher percentage of citizens who feel like they can put time first. Mm. So although it's important to recognize the time traps that we can control, it's also important to recognize that some of our focus on money and productivity is not just a psychological phenomena, it's also a social phenomena. I want to double back and have you comment on personality types, those who stop what they're doing and say, I'm not bringing my work home with me. I want to lay out on the couch, do a crossword puzzle and watch TV. By the way, that's me. I think that people who are so regimented and so insistent on getting everything done and more. They they seem to be less happy. And I used to be a bit more of that kind of person. And then when I switched over to, well, I was sick of being time poor. When I switched over to just say, ah, screw it. It'll get it done tomorrow. There's no consequence to me to get it done tomorrow. I'm a much happier and healthier guy. So our society puts a, a real pressure point on people who are not as productive. Everyone has to be producing. Isn't that the case? Yeah. So unfortunately, there has been a social shift, especially as more of us move into knowledge work, where the output is harder to define. It's not like many of us are making something, some widgets in a factory. It's harder to measure our productivity that we start using responsivity as a proxy for commitment. So um, there's organizations that will use, you know, when we were all going to the office, FaceTime, or how quickly you respond to urgent requests as a proxy for how committed you are, even if you're responding quickly and producing low quality work. Mm. So there is a sense of this 
urgency trap that happens within the context of organizations. It's so important to push back against in some ways that mm. some of that is under our control by saying, thank you so much for this, exactly as you're saying, I'm going to get to it tomorrow because the other person just wants to know when you're going to get to it. They don't probably want it back right away. So it's a little bit up to us as individuals to push back or to be the kind of person that doesn't put it first. Even if the world is trying to push it on you, you have to create some capacity to push those mere urgent distractions away from you and really set boundaries. It's easier to say and harder to do, which is why there's so many tools in my book, because it's not just about knowing these things. It's about trying to enact them in your own life. That's where the challenge right. comes from. And it is so important. I mean, I do have data showing that more efficiency focused people, people are like focused on getting work done constantly, do sacrifice opportunities for social interactions. And one data set, people who are more money and productivity focused, they wanted to put their head down, get through one thing after another. They spent 18% less time socializing with a peer in a lab task, controlling for extroversion, controlling mm. for household income. And so just this productivity focus can make us stressed out and forego the opportunity for small moments of happiness in our everyday lives. We've all been to that cocktail party. I hope we can get back to cocktail parties soon, but we've all been there with certain individuals who are saying hello, shaking hands, looking you in the eye for about a second and a half, and then they're looking over your shoulder at the more important person around the corner. You know, they used to say about, I think it's President Bill Clinton, say what you will about him politically and all that, but one of his gifts was to look somebody in the eye in a group of 300 people, and you felt as though you were the only one in the room. That's a real gift. Before we get to a few toolkit helpful hints, I wanted to ask you about the big picture stuff, say where you're going to live and what kind of career path you might take, because it's not just about the to-do list on the post-it notes. It's some heavy duty stuff. Talk a little bit about that and what your research points out. Yeah. So major life decisions are really critical for obviously how much time and money we're going to have available to us in our lives. And we're often trading off those resources. What we often do when making career decisions, and I myself am guilty of this and provide examples in the book of where, where things did not go right or where you might misstep, is that when we're in the outside of an activity focusing in on it, we focus on things like status and prestige, money. We think about how... Right valuable, what the sticker price of a job or a promotion is. Right. Yet the only thing that matters to our happiness when we've actually said yes to something and we're inside the experience is how happy it makes us and how right. stressed it makes us on an everyday basis. Things like the $50,000 salary differential or even you know, might actually come at the cost of our happiness. We have to commute a really far away or we're working a ton of hours and never get to see our family. And those things matter way more for our happiness when we're inside the experience. But when we're on the outside, all we can think about is money and status and prestige. And it's same goes for house buying, right? So you, you think about buying a home or you think about making another kind of investment, but really the house buying one sticks out in my mind for the time and money trade-off. You sure. want the biggest house for the least amount of money and you're willing to discount the time cost. And of course, my research suggests that's the wrong decision because you forget that the time cost of the commute aggregate across days and you end up use, losing weeks and weeks of your life each year that you could have spent yeah. with friends or family that now you can no longer spend visiting with people that you care about. And then you also have a big house to take care of and a longer commute. So you have less time to spend at home. And it's these kinds of trade-offs that our brains are not wired to make in an optimal fashion. We anchor on 
things we can measure like square footage and money and job title. And it's harder for us to do the calculation of, well, how is that going to make me feel? And how much is the happiness worth to me? So when we're making major life decisions, it's really important to try to project how we think we're going to feel about an activity like a commute or working 10 or 15 more hours, really ask ourselves if the additional salary is going to compensate mm. for the happiness cost. So, so what you're proposing really, and it's, it's a fun book. It's a nice, easy read. You'll have plenty of time to read it folks, but, uh, and don't fly through it. Enjoy it. What you're really suggesting is a, a brand new approach to how we focus on time in our lives and in the lives of our families. And it's not hard when you start to get into it. So let's have you share with us a few of the early chapter toolkit items, just a few things that will whet the appetite. What, what can help? Sure. So first you want to identify whether you're someone who's more like Taylor or more like Morgan. So you just want to kind of ask yourself, do you typically prioritize time or do you typically prioritize money when making decisions in the context of your major and everyday decisions, consumer decisions. It's important to first start off by identifying whether you typically prioritize time or money just to know what your default setting is. Because if you're someone who focuses a little more on money, you're likely to be more time poor. So you might wanna be thinking about making smaller changes around the margins over the course of your everyday life, like spending money to outsource household chores or ordering takeout that help to substitute the time costs that you're likely experiencing as a result of focusing more on money. The second tool that I talk about early on in the book, just as if we were going to try to figure out how to think about our finances in a different way, we would see how we've been spending our finances similarly to think about whether or not you can improve on time. You want to conduct a time audit. You want to see what activities you're spending most of your time on, on a typical work day, in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening, and ask yourself, are there activities that are unpleasant mm -hmm. and stressful that you could get out of, you could say no to, you could delegate, you could outsource? When we're thinking about trying to maximize the happiness and meaning in our lives, we need to obviously spend more time engaged in happy and meaningful activities and less time in stressful and unpleasant activities. But it's not really until we do a time audit where we recognize where our time goes missing, where we see how many hours we're actually spending passively observing social media, for example, and how we could possibly use that time to reach our fitness goals instead. So doing a time audit is a good place to really ask yourself hard questions about what activities do you want to let go of so that right. you have more space in life for things that bring you joy and meaning. It's something that anyone can do. You don't have to have an Excel spreadsheet. You can do it in your head <laughs> and it, did, it works as well. What a great gig you have studying happiness. I wish there were more people in your field because we need to reinstill happiness. But here's a thought about where we are right now. And as we record this, we're still in the throes of the pandemic that has changed everything for at least the last year almost. Have there been upsides that you've noticed in the research when it comes to time where people are forced to stay in, forced to not spend time doing the things they normally did? I know there's a lot of depression, anxiety, and stress. It's horrible. But is there also an upside? So I'm going to lead with the bad news first. What we are going through right now is a perfect example of Parkinson's law. We have expanded work to fill the additional time we can give it by not commuting. Mm -hmm. So in globally representative data of about 3 million remote workers, 
Microsoft analyzed all of their backend calendar data and found that employees were working about one more hour each day, which is the time that they would have spent commuting to the office. Um, and in my self-reported surveys where I just ask people, what are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you spending your time? Uh, my lab is just publishing a paper on this now with about 40,000 respondents living all over the globe. We see that people feel more stressed, more distracted, report working more, report having more digital distractions now than prior to the pandemic, um, and are doing more chores and more childcare, of course, because uh, the typical services right. that are available sure. are not available in many places worldwide due to the pandemic. So that's the bad news first, is it seems we're a little bit more busy and even more stressed than we were prior to the pandemic, both because work has changed and we're working and living in the same physical space, which is very difficult, but also because we're living through a crisis event. So there's obvious external stressors in all of our lives. Either we've been personally affected or indirectly affected, but it's a, a net stressful experience for everyone. Now, on the positive side, I have been observing that people are able um, to feel like they're more authentically connected to their colleagues because you see your cat, you, your colleague's cat, you see um, your, your colleague's partner, you're living and working in the same space and the bar for professionalism to put on this ideal professional work self has gone down somewhat. So I am hearing silver linings in the form of authenticity at work like never before that mm. people are really hoping to hold on to. Also, of course, business travel is down and the consultants that I work with say that's pretty great and they never want to go back to the way things were when they're living at the client site four days a week. And of course, that's good for the environment too. So there are some silver linings. It's very interesting yeah. Though we have seen lower levels of active leisure, like exercising, going outside, especially among working parents. So I think there's more opportunity and more work to be done within an organizational context to encourage employees to take breaks during the day, which has actually become harder because every conversation is, in a, is a meeting now. And so you end up in a lot more meetings than you were before. So I really do think in 2021, as this prolongs, we need to be thinking about being more proactive, about building breaks, boundaries, and transitions into our workday so that we have time to capitalize on what we could be doing, which is like exercising in the middle of the day or cooking in the middle of the day, which people aren't doing, but they could be. So I think some kind of structure around some of these other activities during the workday could be really helpful right now. I'm so glad you mentioned Parkinson's law. Now I know what to call it because I, when I'm working at home in my home studio office, I'm dead tired by the end of the day. I'm working nonstop as opposed to where I am now in my office and studio where I have a much more relaxed work pace, even though I'm here many, many hours. It's just amazing, incredible to me. I thought I'd be loafing at home. No loafing at all, <laughs> unfortunately. So, uh, but before we wrap up, a couple of observations. One is I'm wearing a watch. I'm of the certain age. And I noticed so many people, and so are you, look at that. And you're just a young wisp of a young lady. But so many people, say 20, 30 and under, and maybe even older, have done away with the watch. And at times I'm wondering, well, how do you know what time it is? I know that the answer is their, their phone. But if they're separated from their phone, how do they tell time? Look at the sun, see where the shadows are. I, it blows my mind. I'd be lost without my watch just to know, you know, when my appointments are coming up. Just interesting how the culture has shifted so much when it comes to time. There's some really interesting studies too showing you can tell if you're in a more fast-paced society by whether people's clocks are fast or behind. 
So people who are uh, in a very punctual society will have their watches uh, a little bit ahead. So they're never late. (laughs) Um, And I do think that we could all use to take, we could all uh, use a bit of pressing pause and trying to go backwards a bit and trying to take technology out of our lives, even for things like alarm clocks and, and telling time, because ultimately when you use your phone as an alarm clock, you then will look at your email or your messages and become distracted, which contributes to sleep disruption. So I think we should all uh, really fight against digital technology. So many of my friends have actually demoted themselves to a dumb phone so that they cannot check email on their phone. A dumb phone. So then it also rids them of the expectation of anyone in their lives expecting them to get back to their email at any time. And I really do think more of us should be doing that. Something to be said for that. Well, in an attempt to uh, outrun the Alice in the Wonderland rabbit, I have a a final question and it relates to one of the chapters on future time. And you got that beautiful poem from uh, Dr. Seuss about time flying by. It does seem to fly by, but is there a way to saturate yourself in the moment and enjoy the time? And I I think I know the answer to this because when I was a kid, uh, summer vacation seemed like ever. It was fantastic. Same forever. Now it just flies right by. Any thoughts on the more metaphysical giant scale approach to time that we can savor it more? One very simple intervention that my colleagues tested and published a paper on last year is this idea of thinking about our weekend like a vacation. So just going into our upcoming weekend, telling ourselves we're going to treat it as if it were a holiday can help us be more present in the moment, less distracted by our technology and to savor our moments more. It doesn't change the way we spend our time. We're still doing the chores, but it just allows us to be more present and reminds us to enjoy the limited amount of leisure that we have available to us. Wow. I love that. Unless you're the grandmother on Downton Abbey who once was quoted as saying, what's a weekend? Because they don't have weekends. They have every day's a holiday for the rich and famous. Oh, one more thing. As we record this, Jeff Bezos has decided to step down as the CEO of Amazon, the richest man in the world, one of the richest men in the world, a multi-billion dollar corporation. And I got to thinking, I mean, when you have all of that money and all of that power and fame and all that, maybe, just maybe, and I'm not reading his mind, he's thinking, all right, I think I want a little more time to do things that I want to do. He could be the prime example of uh, trying to handle that time poverty issue. That sounds about right. But for for all of us average folk, I think we need to make sure we don't set the threshold so high that we put off finding time and happiness for ourselves until we reach that status. It's right. about finding half an hour, an hour every day, no matter where we're at in our career to reclaim our time and, and live a happier life. Well, one thing's for sure, Amazon has sure saved us all a lot of time. So we could take that time that we save of, you know, not going to the store to buy the socks, but ordering them to enjoy the time we have. Loved chatting with you. I saw a presentation that you put on and I had to have you on the podcast. Thrilled that we can share just a conversation in real time about this. And the book is much more detailed and fun to, to read. So people should read Time Smart. And can we send them to your website as well? Of course. Which is? Oh, Ashley Willens. So it's A-W-H-I-L-L-A-N-S.com. And I'm pretty findable on social media. So I'm also available on Twitter, LinkedIn. As an HBS professor, not not too hard to find. <laughs> right. And you still have a smart, not a dumb phone, right? Uh, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> 
Can't believe we're saying that. We want dumb phones. Ashley, thank you so much. And congratulations on your recent nuptials. That was exciting news. Congratulations. Thank you so much for having me. Assistant professor at Harvard Business School, Ashley Willens, author of Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. We're all for that. Absolutely. Many thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry at Chart Productions, and to all of you for making the podcast a success worldwide, approaching a milestone soon of 50,000 independent downloads. Also want to remind you, my book is available. It's called On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio. Go to jordanrich.com, every penny being donated to Children's Hospital Boston, a terrific cause. So let's plan on making the most of our time together, dear friends. And I'll see you back here next week with another fascinating guest. Till then, this is Jordan saying be well so you can do good. Take care.